Hi, my name is Mitch East. I'm the preaching minister at University Avenue Church of Christ. We worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1903 University Avenue in Austin, Texas. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you visit us. Our website is uachurch.org, and my email is mitcheast at uachurch.org. My prayer is that God uses this sermon as helpful encouragement and challenging truth. Well, we've been in a series called Back to the Basics, and this has all been about the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you're not familiar with this, this is an ancient confession of faith that Christians have said out loud together for centuries. And so far, we have covered uh, the first section, which is mainly focusing on God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. The second section, which we covered, is all about Jesus Christ, about Him being the the Son of our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, that He descended to the dead, and on the third day rose again from the dead, that He ascended into heaven and is seated right now at the hand of God the Father, and from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. And for the past few weeks, we've been focused on the third section, which is primarily under the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints. And now, we we talked about the communion of saints last week, and today, we're talking about the forgiveness of sins. But, we push back against forgiveness and sin. Some of us really struggle with this idea of sin. We think, yeah, there may be evil people throughout history, but most humans in general are good people. They they make mistakes, they're broken or weak or dysfunctional, but we just don't like the word sinners as much. I remember talking to one of my professors at ACU, his name is Houston Heflin, and he does a lot of premarital counseling and counseling with couples who are struggling in their marriage, and he says, on average, therapists have found out that it takes seven years for a couple to realize and acknowledge an issue in their marriage, and another seven to address it. Seven years to acknowledge the problem, and another seven years to address it. Now, some of you are like, no, I address problems the day of, you know? But this is what he found, and I think it's it's symbolic of our resistance against the idea of sinfulness. We just think that word is harsh. But others of us, I think we really struggle with forgiveness. Um, Each Wednesday night, we, we have a meal with our homeless brothers and sisters in Austin, and we have never debated never discussed whether or not sin is real. But we talk a lot about whether or not sins can be forgiven. Because we look at the suffering our sins have caused others, we look at the suffering that sins have, uh, have caused in our own lives, and it's hard to imagine God forgiving those things. We push back against the idea and... The idea, the idea of sin and the idea of forgiveness. But I need to say up front, without God, I don't really think sin and forgiveness make sense. Because we can do something illegal or unwise or maybe something immoral, but you just can't commit sins unless there is a God whose commands you disobey. 
It just doesn't really make sense as a category, but at the same time, forgiveness doesn't really make sense without God. We can set up justice systems that declare people innocent or guilty, but if there's no God to whom I'm accountable, the category of forgiveness doesn't make much sense. But I think that even if these two things don't make sense without God, I think at some deeper level, we crave them. I think we crave these categories of sin and forgiveness, even though we resist them. When all of the uh, abuse scandals have come out, whether it's in the Catholic Church or the media or wherever you find an abuse scandal these days, we don't just want to use the word mistake. It isn't just that people messed up a little bit. They did evil. They abused Victims, And we want just the worst adjective possible. And I think what we're really craving is the word sinful. But at the same time, I think we actually really crave forgiveness. Allison and I have been watching this show called, called Marvelous Miss Maisel. And it's about this, this couple uh, in New York City. And the, the very opening, uh, uh, opening show to the series... Uh, in that first episode, the husband has an affair uh, on his wife. And for the next two seasons, he deals with this guilt. And he even asks another character in this show, do you think we can ever be forgiven? And he doesn't mean, can I be accepted back into my family? He doesn't mean, will people ever respect me again? He craves, at a theological and existential level, he wants forgiveness. And I think we all want, at some deeper level, both sin and forgiveness. And the good news about the passage we read this morning is that God provides both. This is what the Apostle John says in the very first chapter of his letter that he wrote to a church. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. But if we say that we have fellowship with God while we're walking in darkness, we're lying. We're not doing what is true. But if we walk in the light, as God himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we talked about this in our Bible class this morning, but for this author, light and darkness are symbolic for good and evil. And walking in darkness means disobeying God's command. So John is saying you can't claim to be in fellowship and at peace with God while you're disobeying Him. You can't claim to be with God who is in perfect light and has no darkness at all while you're partially committed to the darkness. And at first blush, when we read a passage like that, I think that God kind of sounds obsessed with rule following. I think we get this impression that God may be legalistic, easily outraged by the tiniest failure. But I think what John is saying is that God cares too much to minimize the wrong we do to each other. He's saying you can't brush aside the darkness that you walk in because God cares too much about all of us. 
I think one way to think about it is that we call our heaven, we call God our heavenly father. And, and that means that all people are in some sense God's children. And if you hurt one of God's children, then God, the heavenly father, is going to be upset. It's not that God is legalistic. He's not a divine, you know, sin accountant ready to pick apart everything you do that just might be a little bit off the beaten path. It's not that. It's that God is our Heavenly Father. He cares too much to minimize the wrong we do. And the Apostle John is saying, you can't minimize it either. You can't claim to have this relationship with God while you disobey Him. God isn't obsessed with rules. He cares that our darkness always ends up hurting ourselves or others. I think this is why it doesn't really make sense to say that there's only a few bad apples out there. Sometimes we want to say that the only sinners throughout history are the evil dictators, but I'm just not convinced. I mean, if all of our failures were available for the world to see, we would not pretend that we're such great people. I mean, just imagine this for a second. Imagine every text, every email, every conversation you've ever had, your entire internet search history is published online today. If you're sweaty and nauseous, it's because you believe in sin, right? Imagine if all of that was out there, all of your history, all the conversations you ever had. We are not these incredibly decent people. We have moments throughout our lives of deep, darkness. Sam Alberry makes this point so well. He says, it's common when someone is wrong, when someone's wrong is exposed, for them to say, I don't know what came over me. This isn't who I am. But King David says the opposite. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, from Psalm 51. Verse 5. Sam Alberry says, scholars debate what David meant, but David's point is clear. What he did was an outworking of what is deep within him. David understands that this is a heart issue. It's not some one-off behavioral aberration. He did what he did because his heart is as it is. John is saying there's darkness in us. We walk in darkness. We cannot claim to be in perfect relationship with God if we disobey Him. He cares too much to minimize the wrong we do. This is what C.S. Lewis says too. Fallen man fallen man isn't simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement, but a rebel who must lay down his arms. I think what John is saying to us is that if we claim to have no sin, we're just deceiving ourselves. I love this, this book. Um, I just love the title so much. It's I Told Me So, A Story of Self-Deception. I just think that's so, it's so accurate about our lives. We tell ourselves things all the time to improve our story, to make it so much more pristine than it really is. But David and the Apostle John are right. If we say that we haven't sinned, we're making God out to be a liar. 
His word is not in us. I don't think it's a good sermon on forgiveness unless I do a little bit of confession myself. Um, this past Tuesday, I woke up and I was hungry and frustrated. I was like a, I was just a toddler from the very beginning of the day. I knew I was going to be uh, very immature for the rest of the day, and it proved to be true. Um, I, I got up and we didn't have any groceries in our house, and I like was scrounging around and couldn't find anything. And I was upset, so I was like, "I'm gonna go. I'm gonna order tacos, and I'm gonna go over to Taco Deli. I'm gonna get those. I'll eat them. I'll feel better. Then I'll go to work and be a good Christian minister." So I, I made this order, and for some reason, totally forgot. Like I drove to church. I walked inside. Chris was there. He saw me. We said hello, and I realized like. There are tacos waiting for me in the opposite direction. What am I doing? I'm totally blanking out today. So I get in the car, I drive all the way back, I get to the restaurant, I get out my wallet, and my credit card is not there. Um, and no joke, my first thought, this is a confession of sin, okay? My first thought is, this is totally Allison's fault. No joke. And as if, you know, all the grocery stores in Austin, the thousands of them are impenetrable forces that I could have not gone and gotten groceries. And it was somehow her fault that my credit card had disappeared. I mean, this is my first reaction. This is my very first thought. And it's, it, you can think like, okay, this is a small thing that happened on Tuesday. This is not exactly uh, resembling a rebel who must lay down his arms, but it is. The fact that it was my gut reaction, the fact that it was my first instinct, shows something about my heart. And I think it's something in all of us. We think, well, that's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. It was out of my control. It wasn't my choice. I was like, of course this happened on the week of forgiveness of sins. I'm going to have to tell the whole church about it. Sin is real, and it's not just mistakes we make, it's not just a developmental flaw, it's a disease that destroys us from the inside, it's quicksand that makes us sink the more we struggle against it. And God wants us to know about our sin, like a doctor who wants us to know we're sick. He's not a divine sin accountant, he wants to know that our sin affects ourselves and others. It's not just that there are a few bad apples out there. It's that we are enslaved to this power of sin. And we can't escape on our own power. And I know that the more I talk about sin, I know that some of us are thinking, exactly, that's why we can't be forgiven. We're too messed up. We're too sick. We're too far gone. We can't be restored. There's no way that there would be something powerful enough to right all our wrongs. I see this in all God's children every Wednesday night. And I know it's true of many of us in this room. We think, yeah, you may say that there's forgiveness out there, but you don't know what I've done. God can't heal me. God can't forgive my sins. But the good news of 1 John is that as God diagnoses our sin, He is also the one to provide the medicine. 
Chapter 2 of John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the beautiful truth of what Christ did for us. Even though we continue to sin, God is not defeated by it. We have an advocate. God's medicine is not a placebo. It is powerful enough to heal your sins. I was talking with uh, Stephen Lawson about this, a professor at Austin Graduate School of Theology, and I just think his analogy helped me understand just the depth and power of sin. Um, he said sometimes we have this idea that humans knew ahead of time what we really needed. Like we knew what could rescue us, and it was like we were in jail and knew like the, the bail, we knew what it cost for us to be bailed out. And, and he just said, I mean, picture this. Imagine us calling God and saying, you know, we've messed up, but the bail has been set at the death of your son, Jesus Christ, so send him on down, do this for us, and then we'll be out of our predicament. But that is not how things happened. We didn't know how sick we were. The apostles, as they're writing the New Testament, realize only in light of the cross just how sick we were. Paul says we're dead in our transgressions. But God's Son, His life, death, and resurrection give us new life. We did not know our predicament. We didn't know the depth of our sin, but when we look at Jesus Christ crucified, we see if that's what it took to heal me, I must have been way more sick than I realized. This is such good news. John puts, he, he crams it all together. He says, look, it's true. You can't be in fellowship with God while you're walking in darkness. It's also true that if you deny sin, you're not really fully recognizing reality. But it's also true that God provides the healing for this sickness. He provides an advocate for you. You don't need to be in denial of your sin. You don't need to resist it. And you don't need to resist forgiveness either. Your sin is real, but it's not as powerful as the medicine of Christ. This is what Isaac the Syrian says. He says, as a handful of sand thrown into a great sea, so are the sins of all flesh in comparison with the mind of God. Your sin is real, but it is overwhelmed by God's love. It's not even close. I haven't spoken about verse 9 yet in this chapter, but I just think it's the key for us going forward. John says, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Each day when I come into work, I pray the prayers that we prayed at the beginning of our service, the confession of sin and the prayer of forgiveness. I do that because I don't want to limit confession of sin to my baptism. 
I don't want that to be the only time in my life where I say, I have sinned. I want my whole life to be marked by confession. And I think that's what John wants for everyone. He wants us to be confessing our sins because we can always know that Christ is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the good news of the forgiveness of sins. Our sin is real, but it's not as powerful as Christ's love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we declare the forgiveness of sins today. Your diagnosis of our sickness is accurate. It shows us just how sick we really are. It just shows how in need of you we are. But at the same time, our sin doesn't overwhelm you. You aren't left without healing and medicine. You provide that medicine to us. You give us her son who heals us. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Let's, let's stand. Wait.